This is the Ball Talk Pod. Evan Kinsey. Starting now. Good afternoon, and thanks to the Ball Talk Pod with Evan Kinsey. On today's show, we're very excited to have former Louisville Cardinal and NBA champion Samaki Walker on the show today. Samaki, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Pat. It's a pleasure. Samaki played for the Louisville Cardinals from 1994 to 1996 and was then selected as a ninth overall pick in the 1996 NBA draft by the Dallas Mavericks. He went on to play for the San Antonio Spurs from 1999 to 2001, and he later went on to be the starting power forward for the Los Angeles Lakers. While a member of the Lakers, the team won the 2002 NBA Finals over the New Jersey Nets, and he later went on to play for the Miami Heat, Washington Wizards, and the Indiana Pacers. Really glad we can have him on. I think he'll bring a lot to our show. Okay, our first topic of the day is your time with the Los Angeles Lakers. Most fans remember you as a member of the team where you won your lone championship with. That team is regarded as one of the most dominant teams in NBA history as the team went on to win three straight championships. Can you tell us what it was like playing for them and winning the title? Man, I'll tell you, uh, for me it was a tremendous opportunity. Uh, Hadn't played with the Dallas Mavericks and playing with San Antonio, you know, teams who had, you know, their own type of, of pedigree. Um, you know, it was a major, you know, upgrade uh, to have an opportunity to play with, you know, the likes of Shaquille O'Neal or, you know, Kobe Bryant. And even guys like Derek Fisher and uh, Rick Fox, man. You know, it was the ultimate team, uh, ultimate team experience. I learned so much uh, playing under Phil Jackson, uh, who was a guru at really learning guys' egos. And what it taught me was uh, what a team could accomplish, you know, when egos were in check, which is ironic. Obviously, we're going to talk about, you know, the Shaq and, you know, Kobe, you know, feud. But, um, you know, magical things happen, you know, when guys' egos are in check. And, you know, Phil Jackson was a mastermind of that. And uh, it was a pleasure to have an opportunity to learn you know, and play with him under the triangle offense. You said guys like Derek Fisher and Rick Fox, and I think guys like that is one of the main reasons why this team success, had great success. When you look at the roster with players like you, Kobe Bryant, Shaquille O'Neal, Rick Fox, Derek Fisher, Mitch Richmond, Robert Ory, and in my opinion, the greatest coach in NBA history, Phil Jackson, your team was definitely one of the most entertaining teams I've ever seen and it's one of the teams that fans will forever remember. I think that another big reason why this team is so successful was, was Phil Jackson and his offense. Of course, you all had great players, but it is hard to win if you don't have a system set in place. And along with Tech's winners, Phil Jackson implemented the triangle offense to those Laker teams, which was something that was spoken about when former player and assistant coach under Phil Jackson Craig Hodges joined us on our show a few months ago. He talked about how it's actually one of the most simplest offenses out there and it really maximizes uh, the team. Uh, can you tell our listeners what you remember from the triangle and also why you think it works so well? First of all, I thank you for that. Uh, 
think I have to piggyback off what you said. You know, no great teams or even great players can't become great without a, a system. Everything has to have a systematic approach if you want to be successfully or want consistent success. And uh, the triangle offense, offense offered great players, you know, like Kobe Bryant, still just that. And what you notice right away is that, you know, they, one of the things they teach is spacing. It had 15-foot perfect spacing. And the game of basketball, and when the basketball court is broken down, it's broken down into triangles. And so it allows players to be able to maneuver, you know, in a certain amount of space, uh, giving space to the other players. And it was, the thing about the triangle offense is it had continuity. It wasn't a play call. The ball, where the ball went dictated where the action happened. And so it kept team, team at bay because they were looking for maybe a, a, a certain call and it never happened. And so if you look at Golden State today play, they're an even, they play, you know, out of the triangle offense. A lot of these teams now still play out of a triangle offense. It's not sort of the one we play, but it's inspired by that. And if you look at the flow and the way the Spurs play and the way, you know, the, the, the Golden State Warriors play, there's a continuity to it, you know, the flow. And I think that's all been inspired you know, from the triangle offense. Another team that does that, the Houston Rockets, they're really big on their floor spacing. They have, they'll always have three-point shooters on their lineup, but they also have a big man, Clint Capella, who can score in the paint, and people who can drive the ball with James Harden and Chris Paul, so that really opens up things. And if something doesn't happen the way they want it to, they can just kick it out to Eric Gordon or Luke Mabaimute or Trevor Reese, and they can hit a three-pointer. So I think all teams have variations of trying on their offense so it's still a popular thing today and some people discredit it because they see what happened with the Knicks the Knicks just didn't have the personnel I mean they didn't have a coach who really wanted to do it I mean if I'm Jeff Hornacek I wouldn't want to run the triangle offense either because I got beat to it in the finals when I was with the when he was with the Jazz so uh, I can see why Jeff didn't want to do that but uh, Phil Jackson is a great basketball mind and also, speaking of Phil Jackson, who was, as we said, your coach of the Lakers, what made him different from other coaches you've had in the past? Well, I think Coach, you know, Phil Jackson was more than a coach. You know, he was a man, he was a thinker. And so he was willing to use, you know, methods that he felt that could influence the mind. And things like meditating and things of that nature, which we did before practice. I had never done that on any other team I played for in my entire life. <clears throat> and I think what he understood as a thinker is that in order to get players to do things on the court, you have to, can, you know, put them in situations where uh, they were comfortable and that they had to think outside the box. And he got, you know, his players to do that. You know, um, to challenge themselves, to go into a part of themselves that would, you know, keep them connected to the moment. And it was all about the moment, you know, with Phil Jackson. So, uh, you know, I learned a lot. You know, we would come into practice before practice several days of the week into our film room. And before we even watch film, you know, he would have this guy, Mumford, come in and <clears throat> we'd turn out the lights and we would meditate. And it worked. You know, we, that's why I think during those pressure moments, the team always had a calm nerve about it. And you know, that was developed. That wasn't something which, 
you know, we lucked into. And that came from the hindsight, the insight of Phil Jackson. Successful people don't stay in the same lines as normal people. They always go outside of the box. And that's another reason why Phil Jackson is why he, why he had so much success as a coach, because he thought of different ways to make players better. And something else that apparently he's done was he did most of his coaching in practice and didn't do as much in the game because he knew his players would be well prepared when the game started. Would you say that is true? Absolutely. And I think that's where the game is actually, you know, played as in practice. You figure things out. And, you know, Coach was a, he was a, a strategist. <clears throat> but more importantly, what a lot of people don't really understand that he was a very detailed person. For instance, when I came there, you know, he realized that my passing, you know, wasn't crisp. Now, we know you learn passing in, you know, grade school and college, and by then you're expected to be a good passer. But what Phil would realize is what your weaknesses were. He would make you work on them. And I remember he got a toss back out before practice. He would make me get on that toss back. And I mean, pass 100 left, 100 right. And he took that seriously. He wanted me to do that every time I came in. And so I did. Because out of that triangle, you know, it was about passing. You know, you get the back door cut. You got to build a face, face up, and make crisp passes. And crisp passes. And he was very adamant and very detailed about those type of things. And so, you know, getting a chance to play for Phil Jackson, he learned a lot. He learned about psychology. Uh, you know, he challenged you on your skill and uh, ultimately made you a better, you know, player. You know, like, uh, you know, just a couple guys in the NBA that players that done that. And that's that I played for. And I was fortunate enough to play for three of them. Don Nelson. Greg Popovich and Phil Jackson. Something that Phil Jackson had to work through and also your teammates had to work through and with it also being one of the biggest headlines in NBA history is the Kobe and Shaq feud. Uh, this is one of, the, one of the things that people like to talk about and I'm sure viewers would like to hear about it. So can you tell us if you saw any of that during your time with the team? Honestly, I did. I, it, it was, I heard about it, you know, prior to I got there. I, before I got there, I think that this particular beef had already started. Now, I'm, I had seen something like this before. You know, I got drafted in 1996 from the Dallas Mavericks, and there was a situation that probably a lot of people don't remember, but if they're basketball fans and understand the Mavericks history, there was a problem with Jim Jackson and Jason Kidd. You know, in that situation, that feud came out. And so uh, it was a situation in which, you know, uh, that I, after speaking with Jim, that a lot of the things that happened never really even seemed to happen. You know, it was made up by the media. And then which, in this situation with Shaq and Kobe, you know, you have two elite players. You know, the media always finds ways to write a story. And one of the stories that always comes out when you have two great players, think of the Shinny and Pack, uh, the Pack, uh, Shaq and Penny era. And whose team is it? You know, is it Shaq's? Is it Kobe's? Whose team is it? And sometimes that creates issues. And uh, if you look at where we are today, I mean, look at the, the stuff that's going on in the media and the type of questions that's coming up today. I mean, some of these guys aren't even real reporters. They're just getting a bunch of stuff that, you know, I guess from hype. And I think that this team was, was, was affected by that. I think this was the beginning of a, 
an era in which, you know, the media hype was beginning to, you know, influence how, you know, you know, players thought, you know, about their roles and things of that nature. And so, and I think that, you know, somewhat bought into it. And I think that it got to a point to where uh, Jerry Buss had to make a decision, you know, uh, do I keep a young Shaq or, uh, you know, or a, I mean, a, a young Kobe, sorry, or Asian Shaq. And, uh, you know, we see what happens from that. I do agree that it was very overstated, but I can see why people would see the issue is coming up because two dominant players both averaging almost 30 points a game. People are going to wonder whose team it is. And something that's like that right now with what's going on with the Oklahoma City Thunder, uh, they have three players who have always been the go-to guy in their careers in Carmelo Anthony, Russell Westbrook, and Paul George. And you can see what's really happening with them because I watched their game the other night and they, I mean, they combined for 30, 30% shooting, all three of them together, but they still won at their defense. So I think that's a lot like your guys' team. Uh, but they really, really worked well together. I don't think the Thunder working very well together. But it is very unfortunate that apparently the two couldn't work it out together. But Kobe and Shaq have recently came out and said that nothing really happened and, like, their friends still, and I just, I really don't see why it's such a big story, but it is, so we have to talk about it. But it is seen as one of the biggest what ifs in NBA history, as many believe that they could win several more. Uh, but what they did in those few years hasn't happened in this century, and I don't think it'll ever be, forever be, and I think it'll always be remembered as one of those best duos in NBA history. I don't believe that. I don't think it's fair to say, not to cut you off, I think it's fair to say there are two unique personalities. One was a tireless worker, obviously, uh, secure a bit, a little more reserved. Um, and obviously, being the most dominant player in the NBA, you know, he, it's hard to develop a work ethic when you know on a nightly basis, physically, there's no one to stop you. And I was just thinking about this, engine you brought this topic up, and I thought about it. You know, it's hard when you know physically you're the most dominant player in the NBA, probably in NBA history of the world, Chamberlain, that on a nightly basis, regardless of skill level, there's no one that can deal with you. And so for me, none of us have been in that position. So it's, you don't know from a mental standpoint how that affects an athlete. And even as great as Kobe Bryant, he's still 6'6". You know, you see guys who are athletic and positioned that Maybe you think that could bother him on a defensive night in and out, or maybe physically to give him a challenge, maybe not on a skill level, but on a physical level, even though Kobe was his greatness, even overshadowed all of that. But two different kind of players and unique personalities. So I thought there were times where maybe, you know, Kobe's path to greatness conflicted with Shaq's. And that's fair. But even with that, I don't think it was what the media made it. I do think that Shaq, I, I don't think that, like you said, uh, I think that he didn't really have to do all the stuff that Kobe had to do because, like you said, he just so physically dominant. And Kobe, when I say smaller, like, people think, like, oh, Kobe Bryant's not very tall. He's still six foot six. Like, they say short people. Uh, if you're saying, like, a guard 6'3", oh, he's small. That's still a pretty tall person because, like, average is, like, 5'10". But 
Uh, I think Kobe really, he was all business and Shaq had all the endorsements and had the movies and uh, had it seen at your shoes. So I probably got frustrated at that. But Kobe did that stuff later in his career. Uh, but I do think that that might have bothered Kobe a little bit. But I don't believe that Kobe was carried by any means, as some of the media believe. Uh, I really think that it was a great relationship on the court and balanced. The two really remind me a lot of Kyrie Irving and LeBron James. Uh, some that happened this summer, Kyrie asked for a trade. It's a lot like the instance with Shaq and Kobe with one one player uh, you know is the better of the two, but the other wasn't carried. The so-called lesser player of the two hit the clutch shots in the closing minutes of the games, but the other player, LeBron, always got the most credit. And you can see why somebody get upset with that. And I think that's one thing that Kobe wanted. They had to choose between that and also because Kobe was younger, they had to go with him. But and one player wanted out, as happened with Shaq and Kyrie, and it is yet to be known what LeBron will do next summer, whether he goes to the Lakers. Hopefully he, he goes to the Lakers. That is my dream situation. But it's a good chance he goes to Cleveland. He stays in Cleveland. But all in all, those two duos are definitely two of my favorites, and I do wish both could have figured it out. So you don't believe any of the Houston talk, then? I, I, I tried to entertain it. I, I think that really, uh, Philadelphia and New York are better, uh, bigger chances than uh, Houston. I just don't really see it. I mean, the a report came out the other day that the the that Chris Paul and LeBron James' relationship of playing together is quite overstated, and I just. As great as Daryl Morey is as a general manager, I just don't think he can pull it off th uh, three summers in a row. I mean, I think he could try his best, but I just don't think it'll be possible. Uh, I don't really see him going to the Lakers either. I mean, Magic's going to try, but I, th I think he'll eventually stay in Cleveland, especially with the draft pick they're getting this year, which is not going to be as good as people say it is. I think Brooklyn's going to surprise people, especially getting Jaleel before now. And I think that the Knicks, Knicks are like the dark horse, I think, because, of course, you see what's going on with Philly, and you see all the, the young talent and Joel Embiid, Markel Fultz, and Ben Simmons. But the thing with New York is they have the unicorn, Christoph Porzingis, and they also have a young defensive-minded player in Frank Nidalakina. But also, uh, LeBron wants to pass Jordan. So... The, one of the biggest things in NBA history is the Knicks struggling as a franchise. If he can turn the Knicks around, I don't think there's any debate who's the best player in NBA history. I think LeBron, that goes in LeBron's head, but also he gets the opportunity to stay in the East, but he also gets the business opportunity to go in New York, and he can build with that the same that he'd be wanting in L.A., but I know L.A. is different than New York, but it's still the same business top city. I agree, and I think he definitely has to go to a place where he can still be LeBron. I'm not sure if Ben Simmons and him and Philly sits, sit in together real well, um, and I don't see him in Philly at all. And I think LeBron has to be a place where there's shooters. 
in order for him to continue to average the assist, the numbers, which is total numbers, is where he can he can compare himself to Jordan. Not MVPs and things of that nature, but when you start looking at his total body of work, I think it's fair to start comparing impact. Impact is huge. Not you know highlights and things that you know just championships, which is fair, but the impact you had on the game once you leave. I think if LeBron can go to a place where he can continue to do that, then he would entertain leaving Cleveland. But I don't see a, a place where he can have that kind of control other than Cleveland. I think he'll be a, Cle- a Cleveland Cavalier. Uh. As an, a team standpoint, I think Houston does make the most sense because they have so many shooters. But if they wanted to get LeBron, they'd have to give rid of probably Eric Gordon, who is probably their best or second best shooter, and also Ryan Anderson, who is a great stretch four and awesome shooter. So their bench would be diminished if they got LeBron, and they take away their shooters. So then if you really consider it, you have three ball-dominant players and then not enough shooters too. Absolutely. Absolutely, and that would be an issue. And, um, you know, to a point is, there's only one guy that, there's one guy that I really admire that's, that's impressive to me. His name is Dwayne Wade. He's one guy, and Chris Bosh. You know, two guys who are superstars who figured out how to play each other. Dwayne Wade is one of my favorite players now because I've never been seen a superstar give up their franchise, you know, to another player to win and learn how to move without the ball, not being so ball dominant. It's one thing that Carmelo and, and Russ and those guys are gonna to have to figure out. Who's gonna be the one to move it off the ball? I don't see Carmelo having that type of ability. You don't have the type of legs. Paul George is known to be able to come off screens and move without the ball, but uh, Melo is not that kind of player. So I don't see their situation working out. So whatever LeBron goes, he's gonna to have to go to a situation where guys can move without the ball to utilize his kind of his particular skill anyway and there's not you know too many places that do that i mean hell i'm glad you go to golden state and that would be the ideal place but uh there's not too many teams that you know he can do that i think they'll give him creative control in cleveland if he chooses to stay in cleveland and that would be his best chance to seal his legacy and what that would be. I don't think he'll pass Michael Jordan, but I think as long as he can have that argument and entertain that, then he's done his job. So, uh, talking about the Thunder, um, I think that, like you said, Paul George can do the uh, takeoff screens and Carmelo can just run around the court and shoot threes, but that's the ideal situation for the Thunder. Like Car- Carmelo, right now, what they want the Thunder him- for him to do is to be a stretch four, because that's what the NBA is going to, somebody who can get hot quick, somebody who can extend the floor and get some spacing out there. But when you think of it defensively, as a defensive standpoint, Carmelo 6'8", he's not going to be able to guard uh, 7'3", Kershaw Porzingis, or a guy like Blake Griffin. He's not going to be able to do that. So he gets a disadvantage on defense, and but you can also entertain the idea of him coming off the bench, but you know I don't think Carmelo's going to take that well at all. He's not going to do that. But I think they might have to go to that route. I mean, if they want to be successful, they need two players on the court who can really effectively get a shot, and then have defensive-minded players. I think if you fill in Patrick Patterson in the starting lineup over um, Carmelo. I think that adds so much more versatility on your team and also have Andre Roberson and Steven Adams, three defensive-minded players, and then you have 
two offensive stars. And then if you need a quick bucket, get Carmelo in off the bench, and you're in a perfect situation to win the game. So that's the ideal situation. I don't know if Billy Donovan's going to do that or not, but that's what I see as a fan standpoint. I totally agree with you 100%. I think uh, Patrick would be a better fit. I think he's you know, strong and plays younger. Uh, you know, he can still stretch the floor, but I think for defensively and rebounding purposes, I think that uh, he would be a better fit, you know, um, alongside, you know, Stevens. <clears throat> uh, but, you know, it's going to be interesting to see. I don't think Billy Dobson has the pull. I don't think he has the courage to pull that move. However, you know, I would, you know, for the team's sake. But, uh, that's a dilemma. Patrick Patterson is a Kentucky guy, so we're going to be talking about some college basketball now. Some that's coming up in a couple weeks is the Kentucky and Louisville game. With Louisville being your alma mater and Kentucky being their biggest rival, this game is probably something you mark on your calendar every year. Can you give us your thoughts on how the game is going to go and also, give us a prediction. Well, I'll tell you what, I, it's going to be a, a game like always for the ages. You know, whenever these two schools get together, I mean, you see a passion for the game, you know, unrivaled. I mean, you, you hear the, the, the rivalries of uh, Duke and North Carolina, and this is one of those that's right up there with, you know, if you look at you check down the history of the two schools. Uh, so I expect this year to be very electric, regardless of the type of players, regardless of the players that are on the floor. One thing you understand when you sign it, either one of these schools, when it comes around that time of the new year, that time when Louisville plays Kentucky, you better put your best foot forward. And um, I had the fortune of you know playing um, and winning against you know Kentucky uh, my freshman year, and, which is probably one of the games that put me on the map. Uh, we scored it a double in Louisville history, actually, and so uh, it's 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 a game in which um, it's going to be strategic. Uh, listen, Louisville's gone through a you know a change. Obviously, with the Rick Pitino being gone and things of that nature, uh, Scott's got you know uh, an opportunity to reshape and build this team and how you know he sees it to be successful. And you know, so far, they've been doing a good job. I just watched them play Memphis, and they look really good. I'm definitely going to pick my... Go ahead. No, you, I'll go ahead. I thought you got off the line real quick. I'm definitely going to pick my Cardinals, though, to pick this, because um, uh, I think they're going to be uh, passionate about, you know, doing this for coaching and showing uh, that, that regardless of what happened this year, you know, as far as the coaching change up, that... You know, these young kids are are just, just as committed to winning, you know, uh, being successful this year as ever. I think that this game is going to be relatively close through the first half, but I do think that Kentucky is going to pull away in the second half, uh, as, they, <laughs> as they do in most games. But both teams have had trouble this season starting games, which can be the case with teams who are just now starting to gel with Kentucky's rotation being mostly freshmen and Louisville adjusting to life without Rick Pitino. But I think that the talent of Kentucky will just overpower UofL in the end. Uh, I think Daniel Dell can really influence the matchup a lot. Uh, he, he can take Kevin Knox, and I think it'll really put Kentucky 
in a tough situation. But I think this game will be close down to the wire. I think Kentucky probably wins 67-59. But I do not count the cards out because, uh, like Kentucky, Louisville hasn't really played many decent teams. But Louisville's played tougher teams than Kentucky so far. Uh, they played like uh, they haven't really beat any decent teams other than Indiana. And did they beat Memphis today? They did beat Memphis. They beat them pretty convincingly. Beat Tubby Smith. Uh, yeah, they did. And then uh, they dropped two winnable games against Purdue and Seton Hall. Uh, but Kentucky right now is in a, a war with Virginia Tech. What the score? Uh, Kentucky, yeah. Kentucky's up by two points with uh, 11 minutes left. So I think this team is this game's going to be a really good one. But maybe, maybe the rivalry will bring the best. I think the rivalry will bring the best out of the cards. But right now, I'm going to go 67-59 Kentucky. It's tough. I can't argue with you. I guess your choice because they are athletes, and sometimes you know I think they do have the ability from that standpoint to be very effective on this game. Um, it's going to be one to see. I do know that those Cardinal fans will have those cards up for it. Uh, the only problem, I think, is we don't have incredible outside shooting. I think Degadell's a tremendous athlete, uh, sort of inconsistent with the shot. Uh, he will be able to match up with Knox, who's an incredible athlete in his own right. You know, so they have a few few more athletes like him who are um, will think will have an impact on the game. But I will be tuned in. I'm looking forward to checking that one out. Oh, and uh, did you see the time of the the game? This is crazy. It's on a Friday at 1 o'clock. I think that's on December 29th. I think it's crazy that they have it at 1 o'clock. Such a big game early in the day. I think they should have it like at like 7 or 8. Wow. I, I was really I surprised know, I, that. Yeah, I wonder. I would question and wonder why they did that. They must have some insider information that we don't have. Yeah. But and, you would think that would be an evening game. Uh, you know, uh, that's that's a big that's a big game, and I think that's a game that a lot of the country will be tuned in on. So you would think that that, would, like you said, would be a seven o'clock game. Yeah, one of the biggest rivalries in college basketball, and also Kentucky has a football bowl game that day at uh, four o'clock, no three thirty. So like that messes up all of it. So I don't see why they wanted to schedule it that day. I know that the football game was uh, picked later, but. That's still crazy to have it during bowl season right at 1 o'clock when most football games are played. Interesting. Very interesting. Well, Samaki, thanks so much for joining us, and we're so glad that you were able to join us, and hopefully you'd be interested in coming back on sometime. Man, it is a pleasure. Uh, I know you've been reaching out to me for some time, so I appreciate your persistence. And, man, after speaking, it has been a pleasure, and I really enjoyed my conversation. Really glad you enjoyed it. Uh, this has been our interview with former Louisville and NBA player Samaki Walker on the Ball Talk Pod. Please like, share, and leave us a comment on all our social media accounts. Thank you.